Welcome to Good Friday at Compass Bible Church. Stage doesn't look like it normally does because it's Good Friday and you never know what you're going to see on the stage on Good Friday. Normally our stage looks something like this, does it not? People up on the stage teaching the Bible, uh, somewhat minimalistic, right? Uh, usually, as we've just seen, worship, usually we have it without all the stuff on the stage. Sometimes you do come into the church, you see things, you see a jacuzzi on the platform, uh, and you think, oh, it's baptism weekend, so certainly stage has that sometimes going on. And then sometimes we give the keys to the kids' department, and you never know what the stage might look like. <laughs> the platform can turn into a number of fanciful things. But on Good Friday, right, you know it's a, a time for us to think through what Good Friday is all about, like last year, right? It's just a whole different set. We took you back to Egypt, and you never know. One of the things that probably gets the most photography, though, at the stage is when we have weddings here on this platform, and we have several of them. It's a wonderful event, of course. They paid photographers to take pictures of our weddings, and what a wonderful thing it is when a husband and wife commit themselves to one another in the covenant of marriage. And uh, everyone's looking their best and really sharp. Uh, but then there's one gal that uh, wants to one-up them all. Uh, and she's dressed uh, to the nines, right? She, she's, she's like it. And uh, she, she's not dressed like anyone else. Uh, matter of fact, she's gone to a lot of work to go shopping for just what she's going to wear at an event like this. And uh, people are paying. Uh, I don't want to judge you if you're paying this much, but only a little bit, I guess I will. But you know, people are paying four, five, six thousand dollars sometimes uh, for a wedding dress. And gals are spending hours and hours and sometimes weeks and even months trying to pick out just the right wedding dress. And I've noticed this about most wedding dresses. They're white. Uh, notice that. Um, not many brides uh, getting married, at least not here on the platform, with a black mini skirt uh, or maybe some uh, lace-up knee-high boots, uh, maybe a crop black jacket. Uh, haven't done weddings like that. Um, we don't see that going on very often. Uh, black is, is probably not what you're wearing, the average normal person. Uh, it's about white. It's very glorious. It's very elegant. And there's a lot of white going on, and that makes sense, because there is something, and if you don't know it, uh, guys will admit it, something very alluring, very attractive, very radiant about a bride in her wedding dress. And it's a beautiful scene, and it's a wonderful thing when we watch it, and you, know, you get all misty and teary-eyed watching this beautiful woman dressed in a beautiful dress, and a man that is uh, in love and attracted and so alluring. It's a, it's a wonderful picture of love, and one that God, by the way, has designed for us to experience, uh, if we have the privilege of experiencing uh, marriage, because it is a reflection of his love for us. Uh, we don't need to think of it the other way around. He created this so that he could illustrate for us uh, his love for us from beginning to end. I mean, really, from the Old Testament and the prophets, even the Old Testament Torah, speaking of the idea of God being like the husband to his people. And, of course, he speaks about this repeatedly all the way to the end of the Bible. Uh, in some ways, in the book of Hosea, for instance, very, uh, uh, just very endearing terms, like, I, I will betroth you to me forever. I'm going to be engaged to you. I'm going I'm to have you as my, my bride. I'm going to lavish you with love. I will betroth you to me. And then there's this word there in verse 19 of Hosea 2, in righteousness. See, that's the whole point, really, historically, I mean, it's been going on for hundreds of years now, of the, the bride in white, 
right? That this is a righteous relationship, that this is a relationship where they uh, you know, are into each other and there's a faithfulness and a fidelity and a love and an attraction for this person. This isn't a lady that's just out spreading her love everywhere. This is a commitment of purity, a reflection of that purity, even in how she dresses. Uh, the problem is when you think of that biblically, right? Uh, we haven't uh, been so good at reflecting that kind of fidelity. A matter of fact, the whole book of Hosea is about the fact that the bride is uh, on the run, the runaway bride. And uh, the idea of what God has been saying is, listen, I have done everything to love you, to pursue you. As a matter of fact, it's put really in an insulting way there in Jeremiah chapter 2, as he says to the Israelites, he says, what did your fathers, the ancestors, I mean, you've been doing this for generations, what did your fathers find in me that, that they went from me, right? That they, they went after worthlessness. I mean, what was the problem? Was I not a good uh, uh, husband? Was I not a good um, committed groom? Was I not the kind of bridegroom that, that you'd want to be with? To enter the household of God with all the blessings and favor of God, it's as though, um, you know, here's the bride running away, and it's like, what, what's the problem? Right? I've been a good God. I have done and provided and supplied. But, of course, that's been going on since the third chapter of the Bible, right? The Creation has been running away from the Creator and the creatures hiding themselves from God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why? Because they had uh, chosen to do what they wanted. They didn't want to submit to their good and gracious providing husband. Right? God had said, I will provide for you, but I, I have to be able to have you be faithful to me. And the problem is that that had uh, stained the relationship in many ways, and there's multiple layers to this in the Old Testament. But it takes the uh, beauty of the bride and it makes her uh, not so attractive, right? It's the stain of sin. It's as though you're thinking about wanting to be attractive to your groom at your wedding and, and having, uh, you know, a mess on your hands. Which, by the way, when I looked into it, there's a lot out there to try and help you brides if you happen to stain your dress. <laughs> Here's what you can do to get it out, right? Do this, depending on what you've spilt on your wedding dress, because uh, I've been around enough weddings to know there's a lot of panic and stress uh, if something's wrong with the dress. But the problem is, when it comes to our sin and how it's symbolized in Scripture as the stain of sin, the Bible's really clear. You, you can't get it out. Jeremiah chapter 2, though you wash yourself with lye and you use much soap, the stain, it says, of your guilt is still before me declares the Lord. Your rejection, your rebellion, your waywardness, you're running from me. You're wanting to do things your way and not submitting to really the best way, the way where the blessing is found, where the favor is found, where he wants to lavish on you all that you need. He said, that's a, a stain that, um, that you can't get out. It's kind of stained. If you think about it, picture a, a wedding, if you would, and having in that wedding a uh, a wedding dress that, that looks like this, right? Um, and that really is how it is in Scripture. The picture in Scripture of a wedding dress that cannot be fixed, right? Look at these words from Zechariah chapter 3. The best-dressed man in all of Israel was the, the high priest. And Joshua the high priest, not Joshua from Moses' day, but Joshua in the post-exilic period, is the best-dressed man, and he's got all the gear of the high priesthood. And uh, here's this vision that God gives. The best man, not only best-dressed, but should be the man setting the moral standard for Israel in this 
picture that God gives Israel, if you can see what God sees, he's just a burnt piece of, 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 of stain before God. It's, he's, a, he's a brand that's been plucked from the fire. Now Joshua, the high priest, was standing before the angel and he was clothed with filthy garments. And that's an ironic statement because you would see him as best, the best dressed person in Israel. He had the finest garments on and yet before God, he looks at Joshua and says, filthy, dirty. And it's the kind of stain that can't be removed. Jeremiah 17, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. Can't fix it. Even in the New Testament, you think about the problem of you and I. We can't keep our lives morally straight because our mouth continues to get us in trouble with a holy God. The tongue, look at this, this phrase here from James 3, 6. It's uh, set among our members, the parts of our body, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. It's damaged, it's singed, it's stained, it's blemished. And the Bible says it just continues to pile up in your life. Ezra 9, 6, I'm ashamed to blush, to lift my face to you. When we start to have an image of the goodness of God, the grace of God, the provision of God, how good it would be to have God's blessing and acceptance, we think, I, I can't even look to God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Now just think about that. The thing that should be to God, the attractive creation that faithfully follows him, is in a position of rebellion, and God says, all I see is, is sin. Well, of course, Good Friday is about Christ coming to fix that problem, right? Christ is coming to fix the problem, and I just want you to pay attention to the way that we've draped the cross here tonight to remind you that the cross represents, usually when we think about the cross, it represents Christ and Christianity. It represents the Christ who comes and does something by the transaction on the cross that's supposed to take care of our filthiness before him. Right? Here's how it's put in the most succinct way. Here's the gospel right? in one verse. Right? For our sakes, God loved us. He does pursue us. Just like in the book of Hosea, we are not acceptable to him. We are people running after our own path. But he made him to be sin who knew no sin. I mean, I just think it's good for us to drape the cross in white. And historically in church history, they often did that on Easter morning to talk about the glorious triumph over the grave. But on Good Friday, I want you to see the white cloth on the cross as a reminder of the perfection of the Christ that came to solve the problem of sin. And everyone could see that, certainly in Christ's day. And as people depicted it in their writings and Christian books, and as the art began to spring up about Christ, I mean, you couldn't miss who Christ was in the picture, right? They always had him identified. Even if you had the apostles around the, the, the Last Supper, they might have their halos, or as it's put in theology, the nimbus around their head, but there was one that had a different kind of nimbus, a different kind of halo. I mean, some are just like over the top, right? Here is someone qualitatively distinct from everyone else. And really, if you look through history, and though it was used of people prior to the time of Christ and his coming... It was used in history to depict someone that they thought had become exalted to a place of, of divinity or some kind of demagogue in, in, their, in their theology or in their structure of government. Right? Christ was always seen as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that's why he was depicted as having some kind of, of crown upon his head. Actually, nimbus is something, if you know weather, right, that describes a kind of cloud. It's the idea that this is a kind of, of heavenly person. 
This is a person that has the kind of, 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 of righteousness that you might see that God has. We think of God as holy. We think of the angels around the throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Right? That picture of a holy God in heaven. Here comes Christ, who is now equating himself with God, the God of heaven. As a matter of fact, he's described as having the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. Or as Hebrews 1 says, the full radiance and glory of God right, is reflected here in this person who in fact is God in human form. Now, it's easy to see in our artwork because we always put things around his head to say, here is Jesus, right? This is the holy one, the perfect one. But that was put in one particular scene in the Gospels as being a, uh, an episode when Jesus had said, you know, there are some of you here that are going to see the kingdom, right? That was really shorthand for you're going to see the king. There's going to be a picture of the greatness of the coming kingdom where the king of kings is going to be on a throne and you are not going to die until you see a, a foretaste of that. This mountain over my shoulder, Mount Tabor, is what we assume is the place not far from Galilee, just south of the Sea of Galilee, where uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the top. Sometimes we call it the Mount of Transfiguration. You've heard of that before, right? Where Christ is transfigured before their very eyes. Now, that's hard for us to depict in art, but the picture is that he becomes someone who starts to show the radiance and greatness of heaven, right? Not just in the sense that he's morally better, and if I just watched him for a while, we'd see he's better, but now there was a visual representation of the greatness and glory of God. And you remember who showed up there, right? We had a picture of the whole Old Testament in two figures, Moses and Elijah. Moses, right? The author of the first five books of the Old Testament, and Elijah, right, the, the key prophet of the Old Testament and all the writing prophets that were associated with him in the minds of everyone, all of the Old Testament looking forward to God solving the problem of our sins by God himself stepping into space and time and solving that for us. And that image there you might remember is Peter says, we should build some, uh, some shrines to you, some altars to you. Uh, and and, to, and to, to Moses and Elijah, too, this is remarkable. They were blown away by this as Jesus, in that scene, showed his glory in a very specific way, in a visual way, in the illumination of his own body that reminded them, I'm sure, in their minds, about the glory of God descending on the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. And God gave this visual representation of the holiness of God in front of the children of Israel. I just love this passage in Mark, as Mark describes this. He's one who adds a phrase to the description. The description is that he was transfigured before them. And the Gospels all speak of this time on Mount Tabor, at the Mount of Transfiguration, where he's transfigured visually before them. But it says, and his clothes became radiant, which was part of all of the descriptions of this. But look what's added here in the Gospel of Mark intensely white, I love this phrase now, as no one on earth could bleach them. <laughs> it's just, this is brighter and whiter than anything that you can imagine. And that makes sense, because the problem has to be solved of an unacceptable creation that you need to start to identify in your own mind, in your own heart, is contributed to every time we open our mouth in a sinful way, every time we go in a direction that is different than God says, here's the path of blessing, you're going your own way. It's appropriate, as Hebrews chapter 7 says. It's fitting 
that we should have such a high priest, someone who's going to help solve the problem between us and God, who's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's a big sentence to describe. Someone who looked like us, had fingernails and eyelashes and elbows, and yet he was someone who is absolutely morally perfect. James chapter 3 that talks about the problem of the tongue says we all stumble in many ways. I mean, there's only one exception to that. And one, one man came to Jesus and said, you know, you're a good teacher. Jesus stopped him and said, you need to know what you're saying here. There is no one good, no one unstained, no one innocent, no one separated from sinners, exalted above the standards, the low standards, the fallen standards of human beings, but God alone. Which, of course, Jesus was that, and the rest of the Bible attests to that. And Jesus trying to get this man to think, you shouldn't toss around the word this word agathos in the Greek New Testament, of real moral purity, unless you understand that no one attains to that but God himself. And yet that's what God is attracted to. That's what God wants. That's what God wants in his bride. But as I said, the problem for all of us, as has been predicted about Christ coming to solve the problem, is the problem itself is depicted as us being sheep going our own way. We've all gone astray. Each of us, and I love the way it's put here, with emphasis, everyone including you and me, has turned to our own way. But Jesus in that passage so clearly says, the second half of the verse is, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This and the dirt and the stain of our sin, I just want you to think this through, has been laid on the cross. Christ has taken the penalty of our sin and has placed that on himself. The Father has said, your sin that makes you unacceptable, I'm going to take my own son, and I'm going to have him be stained as though he were the rejectable person that you are. I mean, picture that. He has to now die. There's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. The Lord has laid on him the ugliness and the sin and the stain of us all. That's why the cross is more egregious, more horrifying than you and I can ever imagine. It's not just a man being executed. It's the one that's holy, blameless, separated. The one that the Father could look at with perfect love and say, I love him. I'm attracted to that moral standard of perfection. I want to pour my blessing on this one. This is my beloved son, as it says at his baptism, in whom I'm well pleased. He's not well pleased with you, and he's not well pleased with me, but he said, I'll take your dirt and your filth and what's rejectable in my heart to you, and I will look at my son as though he is the gross, lying, sinful, lustful, lying, cheating gossip that you are. Look at that verse one more time. For our sakes, for, for our sakes, that to him morally, we look like this, he made him, right, to be sin who knew no sin. He was spotless and blameless without sin. But the Father said, I will transfer your sin right, to him so that in him, if you could just be in him, think this through now, right? We might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. The question is, I got to get in him. I have to be now seen as in him. I quoted the first half there of Zechariah chapter 3, the, the most righteous man in Israel, the high priest Joshua in the post-exilic period is someone who is, in God's eyes, he looks like this. 
Everyone thinks, oh, he's a moral guy. Well, we all fall short of the glory of God. But it says in this passage, listen, could you remove the filthy garments in this vision you're having of him? Take the filthy garments off of him. And and, and that is an image of this theological truth. I've taken your iniquity away from you. Everything you've ever done, I'll take it away from you. And here's the good thing. This is what we need to be acceptable and wanted and, and favored by God. I will clothe you with pure vestments, with pure garments. I'll put good clothes on you. I'll put holy and righteous clothes on you. That's a great image of the best of the bad. All of us falling short. I'm going to make him righteous, which is not just for him. That's the whole foundation of New Testament theology, right? That if we could be in Christ, right? As many of you who are placed into Christ, if you're baptized into Christ, if you have put your trust in Christ, right? Here's what's happening. You're, you're going to be you're going to be clothed in Christ. You now, right, will be what Christ was, and therefore what you are, right, you will become the righteousness of God. You look for this in Scripture. It's everywhere. Isaiah 118, though your sins are like scarlet, this is the reality, right? Because of the transaction of Christ, they'll be white like snow, right? Though, look at this, they're red like crimson, that's what your sins are. That's how God sees you, right? They're going to be white like wool. The reality of your life, think about it, is this. And it only got from this to this, not because God looks at you and says, oh, it's okay. You're fine. He can't do that without this. Good Friday is the reality of your junk before God being placed on him and God punishing him so that you come out of the deal looking like this. You've heard the old Sunday school definition of justification, right? It's just as though you hadn't sinned. And maybe you learn that if you're a church kid, you learn that as a kid in Sunday school. But just think about what you're saying, right? That you know that every time you sin, you pile up more of this before God. But he, through Christ, takes all of that away and clothes you in this so that he can look at you with that look of the groom looking at the bride in white saying, that's the one I love. He doesn't love you through your sin. right? He has to expiate your sin. He has to remove your sin. He has to extract your sin. So that to him, right, just get back to the wedding motif, he sees you as an alluring bride. Think about how many times we see this in the Scripture. It culminates in the, in, in the New Testament at the end in the book of Revelation. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The Lamb who took on your sins and was crucified for you right now is going to culminate all of human history into those that have put their trust in him, who have admitted that they are sinners before God, and he's going to now bring you into his presence, and that's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And everyone's going to rejoice. The angels are going to rejoice. Everyone's going to be grateful for the good of God finally getting an unmitigated, unfiltered relationship with his bride, and he will truly and seriously love you. But he couldn't if it weren't for this. 
Why? Look at how it's put here. The rest of the verse, verse 8. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The Old Testament, there was a lot of blood, shedding of blood. It was all symbolic. The only shedding of blood that mattered was this one. When the perfect could be treated as the liar, as the cheat. Right? But the blood, as it was symbolically applied, they used like what looked like an old tumbleweed. It was called a hyssop plant. And they would take that, uproot it, and then they would dip it in the blood of the animals, the bulls, the goats, the lambs that were sacrificed. And then they would sprinkle that on various things. Sometimes the altar, various procedures in the book of Leviticus. But the splashing of blood, strangely enough, right, was the symbol of if the blood were shed, was shed, sin could be atoned for. Look at how it's put this way in Psalm 51. Purge me. Get me from this to this, and I will be clean. Wash me. Right? Hyssop's going to have blood on it. You put blood on something, it ruins it. But it doesn't ruin it. In the arrangement of Good Friday where Christ suffers so that you can be forgiven, right? you'll be whiter than snow. A lot of snow this year in Southern California. All of our kids went up there, snowboarding and all that, hearing the Bible taught and preached, getting out there. They came home sunburned. Some of you parents know that, right? Because it's bright, right? I mean, it, you're going to get more sun off the snow, right? It's brighter. I mean, you better wear... You better wear Sunglasses. When I asked Pastor Nathan, I said, I said, how did it go? How did the kid? He said, a lot of them burned their eyes. They came home with burnt eyes. And I thought back when I was a kid, I remember that happening to me once. And that's how bright, right, the snow is when the sun shines on it. What you need to do is to admit that you're here. And the Bible says, if you confess your sins, you agree with God that, yes, my sins right? They're bad. Matter of fact, read the rest of Psalm 51. We confess our sins. If we confess our sins, right, then the reality is the blood of sacrifice, which as Hebrew says is not bulls and goats, but the Son of God, the perfect one, unstained one, gets stained, then we become whiter than snow. Good Friday always culminates with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. I try to have some visual up here at the end where you can take the Lord's Supper instead of your head being bowed, which is fine if you do, and you talk to God about your life. It'd be good for you to have this picture. We just have to admit and confess this is the reality. You may say, well, I'm not that bad, but we've got problems, do we not? All of us fall short. We need to, we need to come through the cross to look at what Christ has done and say, I believe that, I know that, I trust that. Forgiveness is full and complete. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, 1 John 1, to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from, do you know the verse? All unrighteousness. I guarantee you, you walked into this building right now, and I bet most of you do not believe you are cleansed from all unrighteousness. Right, because you have the scars and the feeling of what happened to put another mark on what makes you a whole lot less alluring to God. Right? But you've got to walk, walk out of here knowing that because Christ died on a cross and he died for those who are penitent, who trust him with a repentant faith, that you are, in fact, here. Stop denying reality. 
even though it seems like a legal fiction, as some of the reformers put it, that we are in fact, though we have sinned in real time, and we've done it, Christ has borne it so that we can be right before God. If you're a Christian here today, 100% forgiven. Usher's are going to come down. We're going to pass the elements of the Lord's Supper. I want you to think about the transaction of the cross, and I want you to think about where you're at. Because if you don't trust in Christ, you're not here, trust me. You're some version of this. And what you and I need is confession and trust in Christ. If you're a Christian, I invite you to take the elements of the Lord's Supper. If you're not, just let it pass. If you're not willing to put your trust in Christ tonight, just let it pass. But if you're a Christian, I want you to hold on to these elements. I want you to pray. I want you to look at the realities on the stage. I want you to confess any unconfessed sin in your life. And then I'll come back up and we'll take these elements at the same time. Just as a reminder of the goodness of God in forgiving his people through the atonement of Christ on a cross. You spend some time quietly, privately, in your own heart speaking with God as the elements are passed. Of course, God has a kind of love for all of his creation. The, uh, we call in theology the common grace of God. There's a lot of care and provision that God gives to his creation. But the Bible talks about a special kind of covenant love, a promise like you'd see in a wedding that he sets on those that put his, his, their trust in, in him, that would see their sin for what it is. It's um, kind of love that I hope that you can attest is true, not from experience, but from your, your theology, that you know, because you've called out to God in a heart of uh, seriousness regarding your own sin and said, I know I'm a sinner, I'm in need of forgiveness. And I know that the only way to be forgiven is to trust in the finished work of Christ on a cross. And I hope that you can say, I am loved by God, not just like the rest of the world. I'm loved by God as part of the bride of Christ. That he sees me as perfect. He's not ignorant, right? Obviously, he knows every stain of sin that we've ever committed, but he didn't see me that way. He sees me in Christ. He sees me clothed in Christ. He sees me in, in linens fine and pure and bright. That, that's a, a truth that you have to grapple with. It's not like the rest of the religious world that kind of thinks that we're earning this along the way. That You can say that right now I know there is no sin appended to me. There's no condemnation that's attached to my life. There's no unrighteousness that hasn't been forgiven. Because I'm his child, and not just his child, but his, his bride. That he is the one who puts uh, the righteous covering of Christ over my life. The word covering, kafar in Hebrew, is the word atonement. He, he's taken my sin, and he's, he's not really just covered it, though that's a good picture. Just like the clothing in, in Genesis 3, and there's depth to that theology there. But the idea of saying the reality of God has not only just taken my uh, life and seen it in Christ, but he's expunged my record and he's made, me, uh, he's made me right in his eyes, that we bear the righteousness of God. God made him, right, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There are people in this room that are absolutely righteous before God because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. 
and there are some that aren't. And we plead with you this Good Friday just to stop fighting, stop chafing against God's conviction in your heart. That you leave this room completely forgiven. There's no penance to do, if you know what that means. There's no working off of your sin. How long does it take for you to go from sinful to pure? Instantaneously. For honest, repentant sinners who confess their need for Christ. That's what the gospel is all about. That's the core of the gospel. It's available to you and I as we trust in him. And what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper is that the body and blood of Christ, this is the picture of it, the symbol of it, right, is what makes all the difference between this and this. If your trust is in Christ, I invite you to take this bread and drink this cup. God, we pray that you would increase our faith to believe what you've promised, what you've said, what you've done historically. And as we move from this service into celebrating the the resurrection of Christ, that you have given proof in space and time through the bodily resurrection, I pray we'd have even more confidence that you are a God who has taken our sin and like the hyssop with the blood, you have taken our lives and cleansed us and made us white as snow, whiter than snow, as Psalm 51 says. And God, in that we want to revel because you're merciful, you're gracious, you're kind, and you're forgiving. We trust in that tonight. And for those that don't, God, I pray that they be drawn to do that even before this service is over, even before this this prayer is over. They would put their trust in what Christ has done, ready to rest in the grace and the mercy that's found in Christ. Do that increasingly throughout Orange County, throughout our state, across our country. God, bring revival to us as we continue to proclaim clearly the problem of sin and the solution of the cross. In Jesus' name.